Matthew 6 will be in verses 25 through 34. Verse 25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let me pray, and then we'll go into our, our text, Matthew 6, and um, hopefully Lord, the Lord will be gracious to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning and we examine the scripture as it teaches and it talks to us about what um, anxiety and worry might look in our look like in our life, that really... Um, the key of it all is that there's a faith issue in our lives and that we might have in our lives and in our hearts places that we don't trust you, places that we don't really want to give over to you. And so I pray this morning that you would do an amazing work in, in our hearts and in our minds. We know that you are able to do more than we could ever think or ask or imagine. And so... I do pray this morning that you would do that, that you would work in our lives in such a way that we can't leave here with any more excuses um, that we can come up with about why worrying about things are okay, whether it be <clears throat> our our immediate needs, our immediate physical needs, or even um, that you might be calling us to more difficult places. You might be calling us to more uh, difficult places of service. And that we can't come up with excuses why we shouldn't say yes. So we're trusting you, Father, to do amazing things. And I, I just confess I need your help this morning completely. And that I can't, I can't do anything without a movement of your spirit. And so I pray that you would fill me now and give me every word to say. And that you would fill us all here as you speak to us. And that we would submit our lives to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, just kind of a big picture. We're in, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And kind of narrowing in a little bit, we were in chapter 6. And chapter 6, um, kind of one of the overall themes that we've given, chapter 6 is essential, eternal perspectives on kingdom living. So, 
Uh, in chapter 5, he's kind of given us some theology. He's given us some understanding about what the gospel is, corrected some misunderstandings of the Old Testament. And now we've moved into chapter 6, where really he's just being kind of practical with us, Jesus. And he's telling us this is what gospel kingdom living looks like. This is what it, this is what it practically plays out to look like as a Christian um, in, in following me. And in the first half, in 1 through 18, he gave some examples about what it looks like to be a Christian in pray and what it looks like to be a Christian in fast and what it be, looks like to be a Christian and be a giver. And then the second half, we've transitioned over to this is what it looks like as a Christian um, to how to use your money. And we talked about that last week. And now it, this is what it looks like to be a Christian and how to deal with anxiety in your life. And last week, um, I made the statement that really... Uh, verses 19 through 34, all are really one section. Um, it's not like he's just going to talk about money and then he's going to talk about anxiety. I kind of made the, the statement that all these things from 19 through 34 are really one section that go together. And so I want to I want to kind of explain why I think that before I do that. Let me uh, let me show you last week. So you can see. So last week we talked about three things about money, and I simply just asked three questions. The first question that we asked is um, from verses 19 through 21. Basically, he's telling us not to lay up treasures on heaven. But, I'm sorry, not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. Um, and so we just kind of asked the question, um, where is your treasure? And we can trace your, your checkbook, and we can easily find out where your treasure is. It's in the things that you get to play with that shine here right now, or it's... It's for Christ and what you're putting your money in and that you're laying up treasures in heaven. And so that's the first question. The next question we asked just from 22 and 23 is, who are we, who are we radiating? And he's saying that basically uh, we would be radiating or shine forth Christ. If our money um, is in the right place, we're putting our money in the right place, then we would be shining forth Christ. And as we looked at 24, that there was kind of a, uh, an idea that here's God, here's money or mammon or possessions or whatever you want to say. And the idea is you can't serve both of them. Either you're going to serve one and hate the other or vice versa. And so we just ask the question, who do you serve? Do you serve God or do you serve your things, your money, your possessions? And so as we've finished looking at that, um, we're going into this next section where we're talking about anxiety. And so what I want to do is kind of think through what are the reasons why I would say why these two things go together. And here in, in verses 19 through 24, we have Jesus telling these people basically not to let earthly treasures um, be something that they pursue or not let earthly treasures become an idol. Instead, they're furthermore supposed to lay up treasures in heaven. Um, and that makes sense to us. I think that makes per- perfect sense to us because we're pretty wealthy. All right? you, you may not think you're wealthy. But more than likely, every single person in this room, even if you just work 20, 15 hours a week, um, you're in the top 5% in the world and so of income earners, unless you're just unemployed. And <clears throat> you still eat every day. And so you're still rich. And so it makes sense to us to say, okay, I've got some money, and it makes sense that I would want to take my money and lay up treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth. But Jesus here is talking to those who are first century people, probably far poorer than us. Far poorer. And so he's just told them in the first half, don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. And then he says in verse 25, therefore, so that's meaning he's making an argument based on the previous verses, I tell you not to be anxious about your life. Now these guys are thinking, "Um, Jesus, what are you talking about? More than likely, I don't have any money. 
How am I supposed to lay up treasures on earth? I, I just want to feed myself and have clothes. So there's, there's a lot of thinking. All right, he, if he's talking to first century people, to us it makes up sense. Like, yeah, of course I'm not going to lay up treasures on earth. I've got, I've got money. I can buy iPods. I can buy new phones. I can buy computers. I can get cable. I can buy Netflix. I can, I mean, those things aren't bad. But if you just accumulate a whole bunch of things, yeah, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to maneuver and use my money in a certain way that lays up treasures in heaven. And that makes a lot of sense to us. But these guys are hearing it and they're saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? <laughs> what am I supposed to go buy with nothing? I just want to eat and have clothes um, and take care of my family. So that's why 25 is key here. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So you can see how now how 19 through 24 is connecting into 25 through 34. You can see this is really all one thing. He's talking to them about money and they're like, that's making me a little bit anxious because I don't have any money. Um, And what I want you to do here is think through this. Um, what is it then that first century people were thinking because they just want to eat? What did it look like for them to have an attitude where they're not going to lay up treasures on earth, but they're going to lay up treasures in heaven? What did that context, what did that example look like in the first century when they didn't have any money? And they did want to just have some food and clothes for their family. I want to read you a text, and this is what I think some of it looked like. In Hebrews chapter 10, I think this is what some of it looked like. Um, where men and women didn't worry about what they were going to eat and what they were going to drink and what they were going to wear, but they were focused in on letting their lives be about shining forth the gospel um, of Christ and, and really living out the gospel. This is what it says. But And this, this is interesting. This is in first century. And he's saying, but recall the former days um, when after you were enlightened. So this was written... Um, pointing them back to their conversion, but this is still after the cross, and he's calling it the former days. So, remember the former days, after you were enlightened, you endured such a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were treated, for you had compassion on those who were in prison. So, there were people who were arrested for their faith and thrown in prison, and it says these people, whenever they were... Thrown in prison, it says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. So people were arrested. They were thrown in prison. And other people who weren't arrested identified themselves with those who were Christians who were thrown in prison. And they knew by identifying themselves with those who were thrown in, Christ, thrown in prison, they knew that that meant that people were going to come and persecute them. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one later on in heaven. That's what it kind of looks like now. That's what it looks like in first century as Jesus is addressing them saying, don't be anxious. I know that you want food and I know you want clothes, but I'm telling you, don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. So what I want us to do is just try to shift our minds a little bit down to first century and think, um, it doesn't necessarily look exactly what it looks like here. Because for us, it's just like stop buying some things and give some more money away to people that might want to go on mission trips. And that might mean for you a huge step. And I think that's fine. But it's a little bit different there. And maybe God might be calling some of us to this kind of thing. I think as I've kind of looked over some of my and thought through some of you know, the la- maybe the last six months or last year's sermons, um, and, I, and I'm contemplating what Matthew's looked like for us, and I've kind of thought, I think that this one might be, for some of us, um, 
and even my own self as I was studying this week, uh, one of the more really challenging, life-taking, risk-taking sermons that you might hear in a while. And it, it has nothing to do with me, all right? Don't hear it ha- that it, like FUD's decided he wants to be um, challenging. It has nothing to do with me. Uh, it's not that I'm claiming that I can write great, challenging sermons. As a matter of fact, all I'm doing is just reading Jesus' sermon. And together, both of us are looking at the commands and the implications and trying to figure out Wow, he's talking about more than just kind of surfacey kind of deals here about what way my life's supposed to change. He's talking about some things that are really, really difficult to give over in my life. And so together, we're going to hopefully be challenged much more deep as we look at this text. And I think it's going to, I think it's going to challenge us pretty, pretty deeply. Um, so therefore, verse 25, therefore, Do not be anxious about your life. We talked last week as we looked at all of these verses that there's three imperatives, three commands given to us. Um, The first one is in 19 and 20 where he says, lay up treasures in heaven. That's the first command. The second command is in 25, don't be anxious. He also says it in 34, don't be anxious. So that's the second command given to us. And then last command that he gives to us in this big section is in 33 when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. So... um, 25 is really serving as a, a big kind of overarching piece for us today as we're thinking about anxiety, and we're going to have five reasons why we shouldn't be anxious. But 25 is our, is our kind of jumping off text as we look at why we shouldn't be anxious, because 25, he tells us, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious about your life. And then he's going to give us some reasons why we shouldn't be anxious. Now, um, you might be thinking along with me in the very beginning, wait a second, isn't it isn't it okay to think and worry? And isn't it kind of responsible, at least, in some senses, to be anxious? We're not supposed to just be kind of lazy thinkers and say, oh, whatever, God's... I mean, aren't we supposed to play some part? D.A. Carson um, answers that. This is what he says. There is, in a sense, in which worry is not only good, but its absence, biblically speaking, is irresponsible. So there is a sense, yes, in which we should be biblically responsible about being a little bit more competent, a little bit more thoughtful about taking care of things in our life. And you could say that's worry. You could say that's maybe being anxious in a sense. But he also says, after he says that, there is a sense in which worry is not only evil, but the presence of worry signifies unbelief and disobedience. And he's not alone there. That's exactly what Jesus thinks it is. If you look in verse 30, the very end of 30, there's five words. O you of little faith. So this is exactly what Jesus is identifying anxiety. If you are anxious, if you are worried to the degree that you are not trusting God or you are not willing to step out, then Jesus is saying, you've got a faith issue. You've got a trust issue. And that's whenever it is Huge. This is the heart of the issue, that you might be someone who has little faith in God. And that's why you're anxious all the time. That's why you're worrying all the time. Is because diving down deep, the heart of the issue is, you might be, and I might be, someone who has little faith in God. And that's problematic. That's really problematic. So the general principle given to us in verse 25 is, Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. And the way he's going to argue here in the very beginning is he's going to, um, this is, uh, basically it's, um, if this, then how much more this? If, If God does this, well then how much more this? 
That's kind of the way he's going to do it in the very beginning. That kind of argumentation is all over the Bible. I'm not really going to give you an example, although I was going to, but I don't think that's wise and prudent for time. But that's just the way he's going to do it. He's going to say, um, if this, then of course this. So let's look at some of the, the five reasons. The first reason is going to be in this first little section. So let's read. Don't be anxious about your life. Um, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on it. That's talking about clothing. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And here it is. Here's this, if this, then if certainly this. 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? And which of you by adding, I'm sorry, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? So just, just write this down. Here's the first reason. Um, and I think it's just the life food example. You can write birds in there too if you want. But this is basically just the, the first example. Um, once you write that down, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some things here. And if you want to take notes, do. But I'd prefer you just listen. I'd prefer you just listen. Just kind of write down these big five and just, and just listen to how some of these things unpack for us. All right? The first one is the life and food example. And there's really a, a few reasons in there why this is the first example. The first one is, in 25, he said, life is more than food. Life is more than food. He says that, is not life more than food? Certainly we need food. We do need food. But we've already been told that our daily bread is not just, we saw this in the, in the Lord's Supper, our daily bread is not just bread, but it's also Jesus himself. Life is more than food. We need food to live, but we need Christ more than that. Um, and he's ta- he taught us to pray that in 611. Give us this bread. Um, give us this day our daily bread. The next thing is this, that he says, look at the birds of the air. God feeds the birds. If God feeds the birds, you are more valuable than they are. So when the bird, there, there is not a bird ever that, that drives a tractor. It says... They don't, they don't sow or reap. There's not a bird that owns a tractor that, that plows a field, prepares the thing, and gets it all ready. None of that is happening. It's just saying they don't sow or reap. The birds get up, and God is so intimately involved. Notice the, the cosmological participation of God here. He's not a deist where he just set it all up to spin and run, and he just kind of stays up there. He is so intimately involved. Jesus is preaching this, and he's, as he's saying, he says, Look at the birds. Watch, every morning God appoints a worm to, to come up to the top of the surface and the bird will come up and eat it. That's how intimately he is involved with all of his creation. And certainly, if Genesis one twenty nine tells us, I think 126, 127 tells us that we are, we are created in the image of God, that we as people are the, the crown of his creation, that we are far more important than birds then here it is. If not this, then this. If he takes care of birds, absolutely he is going to take care of you. Wouldn't he, wouldn't he obviously take care of you because you are far more important than birds? <laughs> Praise God. Um, now, here's the third thing he says, and, and it's in verse 27. And which of you by being anxious? This is an interesting little phrase here. Um, this is still under number one, the third thing in number one. Um, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you, if you look down in your little footnotes, if you have footnotes in the ESV, it says, or add a single cubit to his stature. That's really kind of the, the really rough translation as he's saying, which of you, by worrying, 
can make yourself get taller. Um, but it's talking about which one of you... Ad- can the ESV is capturing the, the, the idiom, the, the Jewish saying here really well when it says, which one of you can add a single hour to his span of life? In other words, worrying does not add any minutes to your lifespan. It doesn't do anything. You are not going to live longer by worrying. As a matter of fact, um, God determines when our life will end. Like, period. Like, there is, there's, no, there's nothing else we need to talk about when we think... I have been appointed a certain lifespan. Worrying will not de- change the decree of God in regard to that. And that's just what Jesus is trying to point you to when he's saying, your life is more than food. Sinclair Ferguson, as he's talking about, as someone worries and there, this, this sign of worrying, he said, worry, one's worry is a sign that he does not know Jesus or that he does not trust Jesus or that he has not yielded to Jesus as he ought. It could be any of those signs. It could be that you are not a Christian, that you don't know him, or that you may know him, but you just don't trust him. Like verse 30 is telling us, oh, you have little faith. Or you've just not yielded to Jesus as he ought. He's calling you, he or he has called you, to deeper walks, to harder places, to more challenging places in, in your life. And you just say, I can't do that, that's too much. And that, that really stresses me out a lot, Jesus. And Sinclair Ferguson rightly says that you, you are not trusting God as you should. Um, all right, that's the first one. Is that's the life and food example. Uh, now, I want to show you the second reason why you shouldn't worry. And listen, all, I'm going to have five here, and one of these might not work for you. One of these might not help you out, but one of these hopefully will. So as we, as we go through these, if you're, if you're a tremendous worrier and you just heard, well, God takes care of birds... And certainly he's going to take care of you. And that doesn't help you. Well, just keep tracking along with me. I'm hoping that one of these will do it. Um, because Christ has said this and he knows us so well that he knows one of these will help. All right, so here's the second one. Um, in verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So Solomon, um, he had tons of splendor. He had tons of money. And he just, he just was basically really beautiful. And he's saying, look at the field. And God has thrown lilies. Or This is really more flowers, wildflowers, but they just wrote lilies. Um, look at all these fields and how God has, has colorfully beautified this field here. God has done that. And certainly, those things are even more beautiful than Solomon. So certainly, if he is willing to clothe a field, he's going to clothe you. All right, so, um, why are you worried about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So here's the second one, the body clothes example. The first one was the life and food one, or the birds. Here's the second one, the body and the clothes. Um, And this is really interesting, because if you look back up to the end of 25, there's a little bit of an argument for the second one. The very end of verse 25, he gives us one little snippet of understanding. And it is, I mean, it is deep. He just... Runs by it. Look what he says. The body is more than clothing. That's what he says at the very end of 25. The body is more than clothing. Um, 
in 1 Corinthians 15, this is really kind of a big chapter on the glorified body of Christ and then also our glorified body. This little sentence, the body is more than clothing. Jesus is pointing to us that one day when we're glorified, that we will be fully clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So the body is more than clothing. As a matter of fact, our bodies aren't just something that kind of go away. This body that you've been given is important to God. So even after you're buried, when the second coming happens, this body we have will be writ, will be, I always have trouble with that, will rise and then we will, uh, <laughs> we will be, we'll go into heaven where our body will be glorified. So this, this body is more, this body is more than just clothing because one day this body will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's a beautiful thing to think that 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us that yes, you have clothing right now that covers you and, and you know, is useful for modesty and, and, and things like that, but one day our body will be completely clothed with the righteousness of Christ and we will be glorified, not that we will somehow receive glory because it, our, our glorified body is not for our glory. Our glorified body is to glorify Jesus because we will be made like Christ, like his resurrected body. It's a beautiful thing. And so the first little thing he's telling us is that the body's more than clothing. And then the second thing he says this, um, and which is in 28 through 30, he tells us um, basically the argument about how he, he closed the fields with, with lilies. And if he closed the fields with lilies, then of course he's going to clothe you. So God closed the fields, so he will definitely clothe you. Um, and if you, if you think we've got to be more important than flowers... This is a little bit different than the argument about the birds. The birds, he's saying, um, from creation, we are more important than birds because we have the image of God in us and birds don't. And this one, he's saying that we're more important than flowers because we live far more longer than they do. Although we are a mist, a vapor in the wind, no doubt. We live far longer than a flower does. Um, And if that's the case, then of course, he will take care of us and he will clothe us. Now, clothing... um, is a little bit less important than food. We need food to live. You don't actually need clothes to live, although it's, a, it's certainly a great idea for us to have clothing. Um, it, is, it is definitely important. Um, and so Jesus takes really two of the most important necessities, two of the most important necessities, and says, I know that you're thinking that you're anxious about being a giver, being someone who's going to lay up treasures in heaven, And the two most important things, food to eat and clothing, which not just covers us and keeps us modest, but also in winter protects us, keeps us warm and these kinds of things um, where we're thinking we have to have those things. And he's saying, I know you need them. I'm God and I'm going to take care of you. So you don't need to be anxious about being the kind of person that is going to lay up treasures in heaven because I am going to take care of you. Um. Sinclair Ferguson says, um, regarding this idea of you of little faith here in verse 30, he says this, um, when anxiety creeps in, when anxiety creeps into your life, this is what he says, it's only when we want to take our lives out of the Father's hands and have them under our own control that we find ourselves gripped with anxiety. So whenever we're not ready or not willing to give our lives over fully to Christ, to trust Him with the most simple, basic necessities of even food and clothing, whenever we do that and we say, I'm going to control this God, that's whenever He he shows us that we are probably most gripped with anxiety because we are showing and demonstrating someone who is very much someone of little faith. 
very much someone of little faith. And we don't want to be someone who are, who are Christians that have little faith. Now, we're going to turn a corner here. He's still going to use an example, but he's, he's moved away from this, if not this, then this example. But he's still going to kind of do that in this third one. But he's used food and clothing here as the first things. I'm going to take care of you. Now, we're going to turn a little corner here and start talking about something maybe a little bit more, um, a little bit more deep than just our basic necessities of food and clothing. Um, he talked about food and clothing. Now, what are the big things? What are the big things in life that we might be anxious about? Yes, we're anxious about food and clothing, but there's probably some bigger things in life that we might be anxious about. And those bigger things are really, I think, um, top on the list is really submitting fully to the will of God for your life. I don't know that there's any more thing that we might be more um, anxious about that if you know God is reaching into your heart as we talk about unreached people groups or as you think about the 1040 window or as you think about maybe walking across the street to talk to your neighbor about Jesus and you know um, whatever degree it is from walking across the street to getting on a plane and living in the 1040 window for the rest of your life and wherever it is it falls in between that you might be being called out as a minister of reconciliation you have a comfort level that you're willing to do Maybe you are willing to walk across the street, but you're not willing to start a ministry. Maybe you're willing to start a ministry, but you're not willing to go to the 1040. And wherever God might be calling you, you're, you're nervously walking up to that line and saying, I think that this is where I can go, but you're calling me there, and that's just difficult. Look at some of the things that he's going to say, because we've talked about he's going to take care of our necessities. And I just want to talk a little bit about... Um, the reason why I think that we, we are nervous or apprehensive about taking that further step in ministry of reconciliation is because we think, well, if I go there, how am I going to eat? How am I going to live? How am I going to have my basic necessities taken care of? And that's probably why we don't do it. It's because we're forgetting that he's already told us he'll take care of those things. Now, there's more to this, and I'm going to get to it soon. Um, <clears throat> because <laughs> as you look at the Apostle Paul's life, we can see that there's a little bit of complexity. Um, so let, we're going to get to that in a second. Now, the third example. The third example is going to come from 31 and 32. And so Jesus is going to give us another therefore here. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear? And here's another for. Here, so here's another um, argument being made. For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So there's two in there. We're going to address the first one. For the Gentiles seek after these things. So there's the third example. There's the third reason why we should not worry. The reason why you should not worry is because of the Gentile example. What does that mean? Well, um, over in 547, 547, the Gentiles, that's you and I, we're all Gentiles. And, but here, it's not Gentiles like us, um, but the Gentiles in this section are kind of being painted in a pretty negative light. So that doesn't mean that we're all just, you know, looked on by Jesus as not very favorable. <laughs> um, you can see in 547, it says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Like, they're kind of used like, they're kind of the lower, you know, class. They're not. They're not walking with. They're not. They're not very. Uh, they're not very awesome. But we are awesome. But this is what he means when he talks about Gentiles. He's not necessarily talking about people who are Christians that are Gentiles as much as he's talking about people who are not Christians, basically pagans. So here, as we're looking at this in, in thirty-two, he says, "For the Gentiles seek after these things." Um, the third reason we should not be anxious is because. Gentiles seek after these things, meaning 
This is how D.A. Carson says it. Lack of un- uncompromising trust in God is not only an affront to Him, but essentially pagan. It's essentially pagan. So what he's saying here is, um, when you as a Christian are worrying, when you as a Christian are anxious about things, <clears throat> you look like a pagan. You look like a pagan, and you look like you have a weak God. When you worry, that's the third reason you shouldn't worry is because you look like a pagan with a weak God. Now, how do the Gentiles seek after these things? What is it? What does it look like when the Gentiles seek after these things? Um, Al Mohler was kind of talking about this. Um, and, and, and commenting on this. And he said, this is how the Gentiles seek after these things. He said, they seek after lust and pleasure now because they think that they'll never have real joy later. Everything is now. They're, they're thorough hedonists. Everything must happen now. And what happens is, since this life is all we have and I need to seek pleasure now, if I don't get it, then it makes total sense to be anxious. Because if I am poor or I don't have money and I can't seek the highest forms of worldly pleasure now and I don't get them, then it makes total sense for them to be anxious because all they have is this. And if they don't make the most of this and they don't believe that there's real joy later, then they are thoroughly pagan if they can't have us they're totally anxious and they seek after everything they can like drugs and lust and self-pleasure etc etc and here's a here's maybe a little bit of a a uh, convicting question do you look like that does your pursuit of pleasure look like that because if it does then you're pursuing you're pursuing pleasure like a pagan rather than like a christian because we know that real joy is later that real joy is not here now and temporal things but really it's later um, with Christ in heaven. Now, let's switch back over because um, as we're hearing you say, as you hear me say, don't, don't worry about things because if you worry about things, you're looking like a pagan. You're looking like a Gentile. Um, you might think that and hear that and say, that doesn't sound, um, that doesn't sound very tender-hearted to me, Fudd. Um, you, or Jesus, really, you can look at Christ and say, you telling me that my worry and my anxiety um, makes me look like a pagan. When I hear that, I'm thinking, Jesus, you don't understand. My worry is legit. I'm not a pagan. I'm not worrying about pagan things. I'm not pursuing lust and pleasure. Um, I have a real legitimate worry right now. My job, my school, my bills, my money for food. And when Jesus, you tell me that um, when I hear your advice being don't worry and I'm worrying about legit things, I hear your advice is don't worry um, because if you do, you just look like a pagan. Well, Jesus, I find that advice not to worry pretty naive. I find that advice very insulting and really pretty unhelpful, Christ. Just don't worry. Just, just don't worry. <laughs> um, when Piper was talking about people's thoughts on that, John Piper, he was commenting on it. He says this. This is advice about questioning Jesus', Jesus advice. He says this. Be real careful that you do not elevate your pain or your anxiety to the level to where Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. And that his prescriptions and remedies and reasons are useless to you like... You look like a pagan. He says, be real 
careful that His prescriptions and His remedies are useless to you. Be very careful that you don't become cynical and think that you can rise with your pain above your doctor and what He's telling you and say, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Be really careful that we don't posture ourselves to Christ who is God and the way He's telling us to think about worry. He does understand. He's Jesus. I mean, he, he is God. So yes, not to minimize the fact that you probably have real issues in your life to worry about, whether it's job or school or bills or, or money for food, etc. But Christ is telling you, if you serve Him, if He is your Lord, you look like a pagan with a weak God if you worry. And God is strong. So, that's the first or the third one, wherever we are. Um, you look like a pagan. You look like a Gentile. And then he moves into the fourth one. Um, and this one, this one's awesome. This one is really, really extraordinary. Look at uh, 32. It says, For the Gentiles seek after these things. So that's the reason why you don't want to look like a Gentile. You don't want to look like a pagan. And look at the second part. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your Father... We've already I talked about this in, in the prayer... So I'm not going to go back to it, but when we talk about our Heavenly Father, heavenly meaning He is vast and huge and transcendent and big and the Creator of all things, and He has the ability to create and bring about all things, but He's also your Father, a deep, intimate, passionate um, lover of your soul who's, who's better than any earthly father you ever had. He's, he's your Heavenly Father. He knows that you need these things. We're talking about God Himself, deep and intimate, but also vast and big and has everything. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So that's the fourth reason you shouldn't worry. It's because God knows what you need. God knows what you need. And I think that we, we could just kind of pause and just rest in that truth for a moment. God knows what you need. There is not a need that you have that He doesn't know. You're a heavenly Father who owns everything in the world and is the best Father in the world who loves to give good gifts to His children. He knows what you need. You, you need to just stop and pause and not fly by that truth and rest in the fact that this is a comforting truth. That our Father, the Creator of everything, knows exactly what you need. And He can make it Happen anytime, and He can give it to you anytime. That's a pretty good reason not to worry. But there's a little bit of a question that kind of lays out there. I don't want to run over that too fast. Your Heavenly Father knows and can give you what you need. But there's a little bit of a question out there. What happens when He doesn't? What happens when He doesn't? Now we're going to get to the Apostle Paul here for a second. What happens when He doesn't give us those things? You need to know that this promise, there's a promise. Let me, let me read you the promise in 33. The, the first, verse 33 starts off with the, with the command or the imperative. This is what you should do. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And here's the promise. Here's the, not only does He know that you need Him, we saw that in 32, but the end of 33 is going to give you as a Christian the promise. And all these things will be added to you. 
That's the promise. It's there. It's not like it's kind of hidden and clouded and maybe it's there, maybe it's not. There is a promise given to you that he will add when he says these things. What are these things? It's the things we've been talking about in 25 and, and following. He knows that you need food and he knows that you need clothing. And if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, these things will be added to you. That is the promise. But there's still the big question. What happens sometimes when those things are not added to me? He knows that you need them. I want to read this because I, I, I worded it as precise as I possibly can. I want you to hear this, all right? He knows that you need him, but his promise to give them to you, which is given to us in verse 33, very clearly, can be superseded by something. His promise to give you those things can be superseded by something. Namely, that you may be someone who is called out to not have these things and further be persecuted for the name of Christ. You may be one like the Apostle Paul who did not and will not have these things because he wants to call you out for the sake of raising you up as someone who will be persecuted for his name's sake because, Colossians 1 says, when we are persecuted, we are completing what is lacking in the um, in Christ's afflictions, meaning that we're not somehow making the atonement more efficient whenever we're suffering, but we are putting on display the sufferings of Christ. And we're putting on display the sufferings of Christ. We are, because Christ is not here right now, we are a visible display with our sufferings of the sufferings of Christ the cross, and we are showing them that someone has suffered for you on the cross 2,000 years ago, and you can have forgiveness of sin. So you might be called out when these things aren't given to you. You might be called out to be persecuted. That, that you might be one of the few precious martyrs of Psalm 116.15 who are martyred or persecuted, um, maybe not killed, but at least persecuted, are called to suffering for the name of Christ so that the name of Jesus will eventually reach every tongue and tribe. And there are texts, and I'm just going to read a couple to you. That we don't need to miss that we might be someone appointed to suffer for his name. And he does promise. He does promise that we might be suffer, that we might suffer. Here's one in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress? Here it is. I mean, this is really obvious. Or persecution or famine, there's without food. Or nakedness, there's without clothes. Or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, Jesus, we are being killed. All the day long, we are regarded to be sheep as slaughtered. So there is a sense in which we might be naked. We might be hungry. Because we might be called out to be persecuted for the name of Christ. Here's another. Philippians 1.29, it says, It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe that you become a Christian, but it's also been granted to you that you should suffer for His sake. So there's another verse that, sh that shows us there might be times where we don't have this precious promise of 33 of food and um, clothing for the purpose of putting on display the righteousness of Christ or the sufferings of Christ. And here's another one. This is, this is word for word from 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's as straightforward as it gets. 
And here's, here's the example of Paul. Paul told us that he himself, in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm just going to pull out one verse in 11.27. It says, where he's kind of listing all the things that happens in his life. Notice the absence of food and the absence of clothing in this one little verse. He says, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What happened to the promise? Well, the promise still stands. Verse 33 is not somehow negated if we are called out to be those who are going to be suffering for the name of Christ. Instead, it is even more beautiful that our going without food or clothing, those basic necessities, whenever it's for the sake of suffering puts on display the gospel of Christ in a most precious way where people are drawn to Jesus. And so there might be a time in your life now or to to come one day where Jesus might be calling you out to take a a deeper walk, a a further step in your faith, a, a, a big, huge step in ministry. It might not be that you get to live in America for the rest of your life and have the easy life here where you can go to Burger King and get a cheeseburger at any time. Or you can run over to American Eagle and buy a shirt. It might mean that you're called to one of the hardest places. So how can we as Christians, how can we reconcile this fact that He's promising us in 33 that we will have our basic necessities, but we know in Scripture there are people who followed hard after Him who didn't have those things. How can we reconcile that? that He has promised that people manifestly won't have food and water and clothes sometimes as followers of Him, but in fact might be persecuted, they might be killed for their faith in order to advance the gospel. A couple things, three things. Number one, we need to trust that God is who He says He is. We need to trust that God is God and that He is Good. By definition of being God, He is good. And that everything that comes about in our life, providentially through His hand, is always good. Even persecution, for His namesake, is good. If you suffer for His name, that is good. And the reason why we know that is because we're thinking in an eternal mindset, not a temporal mindset. If you only think of this 70 years that you have, or 80 years that you have, you will think that suffering is bad. But if you think an eternal um, mindset, then we know that that means ten thousands of ages that I get to be with Jesus, that is far more, far more better than any level of suffering I might have here. So God is good. The second way that we can reconcile these things is that we should never get over the gospel. I mean, that's the way it's going to happen in your life. You will step out and walk into, if God is calling you, to deeper walks and possible persecution if you never get over the gospel. The fact that you were and I was before Jesus, as Ephesians 2 says, a a, a devil worshiper. We were wretched, wretched sinners. And now we have not just been kind of made from bad to good. We have been declared dead, now alive. We have been called wretched and now Righteous as Christ. If we never find ourselves, if we find ourselves never getting over and living in complete thankfulness of that, 
then we'll be willing to take the kind of risks that He might be calling us to in life. This day by day that you're in, and I'm only, listen, I am only speaking to you who know that you have kind of shut out a deeper calling or a deeper walk or a different kind of ministry of reconciliation. Some of you might be walking right in the Lord's will right now. But some of you, there's no doubt in my mind, have shoved that away. God's called you to a hard place and you shoved it away. I like this place. God's called you to share the gospel with that person across the street and you shoved it away. God's called you to start this ministry and you've shoved it away. I'm only speaking to you. And I, I know there are some of you in this room. You need to trust who He says that He is. He will take care of you. He is good. And whatever persecution comes your way, it's not going to compare to the glory that will be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And we never get over the gospel. And the third, and let me just say, this is how it's going to happen. Verse 33 is, is, is right on in how this is going to happen, how we're going to reconcile, how we're going to do that. Look what he says. But seek first. This is the, the last command given to us in this little section. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's how you're going to do it. You're going to seek first His kingdom and the advancing of it in whatever way that looks in your life. That might mean sharing the gospel with your neighbor or your family or your weird uncle. Or that might mean sharing the gospel with the Burmese of Myanmar. I don't know. Or anywhere in between. It might mean any of those things. And how is that going to happen? You're going to seek first the kingdom of God and the advancing of it and His righteousness, which is our only hope for right standing with God. We will never ever have any other righteousness besides the righteousness of Christ. And when we do that, when we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, that is when we are living, I mean really living as Christians. That's whenever we were walking out this gospel of the kingdom. In our lives. That we are ready at any cost to our own life to serve Christ in any way that He calls us. And in doing it, we are not anxious at that moment. That's whenever we, in doing it, are most filled with joy. I am not anxious about going and doing that across the street, starting a ministry, moving to somewhere else in this state or moving somewhere else in this nation or going to another country. As a matter of fact, I know that once I'm there, that's when I'll be filled with most joy. I want to step out, God. I am, I'm not going to worry about food and clothing, how I'm going to eat and how I'm going to drink there or how my children might be taken care of or how I'm supposed to give birth to a child in a third world country. I'm not going to worry about those things. Because you're good and you're God and I can't get over the gospel. So I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and I'm going to trust you. And I know that when that's happening, I'm not anxious. I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with deep joy. Now, I want to point out just a couple things about this promise in 33. Point out just a couple things about this promise when he says, and all these things will be added to you. First of all, this is not to unbelievers. This is just to believers. All these things will be added to believers. These are not luxuries. All these things, these are the necessities of life. Not stuff. He's not promising you a whole bunch of play toys. He's promising you necessities. And of course, that third thing, which I've already unpacked for us, is 
you might be persecuted for righteousness sake. And that supersedes or in a way um, calls you to a deeper thing that your necessities are going to be taken possibly in a deeper way. Calvin, when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you, food and water. This is a pretty amazing thought. He's saying, he's not saying, Jesus isn't saying, seek food and water. And when you did that, then you're going to get Jesus. He actually says, seek Jesus and he'll add these things. Calvin says this, it, he, this is amazing, that we're being told to seek the infinite. We're being told to seek the thing that relates to the life to come. We're being told to seek the thing um, that is greater, not the lesser. And whenever we seek the thing that's greater, Jesus and his kingdom and his righteousness, then what he calls favorable appendages, <laughs> things that are nice to have on the side like food and clothes, he says, those things are clearly being given to us, but we're being told to seek what's superior, his kingdom and his righteousness, not inferior food and clothing. Though those things are helpful in life. That's pretty awesome. And then Jesus, this is awesome. I mean, it's almost like Jesus is done. He's given that last command. And then he just kind of, in passing, goes, oh yeah, you know what? Um, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. By the way, real obvious, Here's the fifth one, and this is just kind of the, the today versus tomorrow reminder that he throws out to us. Um, you don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. You don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. He says, sufficient is the day for its own trouble. In other words, there's plenty going on today. There's plenty going on today. And tomorrow's misfortunes might not ever even happen. So, this is, let me read you Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. It says, The steadfast love of the morning never, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never coming to an end. Here it is. They are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says to my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So, all the mercies I need for today are given to me today. He's not giving you mercies right now for tomorrow. Tomorrow is sufficient for his own troubles. And there will be new mercies and new grace for tomorrow given to you for that day. So you don't need to worry about tomorrow because God's going to give you new mercies tomorrow. And there's plenty right now, there's plenty right now that he is giving to you. Right now. You don't need to worry about God will give you those tomorrow. Sufficient today is for its own trouble and sufficient for today are God's mercies. He's giving you all you need for right now. So the cure for our worry is the gospel. That's the cure. There's nothing else we need to cure the worry of this world besides the gospel. So we want to replace worry and anxiety with contentment. We have found our life in Jesus and we're content in him. We have found our peace with Jesus and we're content in him now. We have found our forgiveness and the gospel of Christ. And so we're not worried because everything we need has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. We are totally forgiven from our sin. Nothing is being held against us. How can we give all of our life to Christ? How can we do that? How can we not be accused, as in verse 30, of someone who is of little faith? Because we find all of our value, all of our life, all of our hope, and all of our love in the gospel. Everything has been given to us in the gospel. It is the cure for everything. And from acceptance with Christ and forgiveness with Christ in the gospel, now we will walk out love and obedience. Now we will walk out contentment. Now we will walk out knowing that he's going to provide our necessities. And most of all, this is most of all, more than anything, now based on 
right standing with God, you and I can walk out in the place that He's calling you to. The, the next step, the harder step, the deeper place, and not be anxious about it, but instead be filled with joy and stepping out in that. Because we, we're completely forgiven in Christ. We have nothing to fear. So as we go into um, this time of reflection and thankfulness, and as we go into the Lord's Supper, and as we go into worship, I just want to ask that you would um, resolve in your heart now whatever it is that God's doing, whatever it is that He's calling you to, whatever worries it is you have in your life, that you would cast those things away and focus in on verse 33. Seek first His kingdom and the advancing of it and His righteousness that's been given to me and trust God and be willing to do whatever He calls you to do. And just resolve that in your mind. Work on that in your heart right now. And as we go through the Lord's Supper and as we go through worship, um, determine that you want to do those things. And spend some time in prayer, whatever you need to do. Think through those things. And stand and worship with us and, and taking of the Lord's Supper as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and as we consider what you're really calling us to here, that you're not just calling us to not worry about food and clothes, but you're really pointing us to the fact that you're good and that you love us deeply, than we, more than we could ever know, and that you might be calling us to do things that definitely make us nervous. But communion with you and life with you is far, far better than playing it safe for 80 years and not fulfilling the will of the Lord in our life. Being scared to step out on faith is not what we want to do for our entire life. We want to trust you. We don't want to be people who are of little faith. We want to be people of great faith. So Lord, whatever it is that you're calling us all to do, whether it's um, something as sharing the gospel with our neighbor, starting a ministry, moving somewhere, or moving out of the country to be a missionary. I pray that we wouldn't be found as people of little faith, but of great faith, because we serve a great God. And in those moments, we're not anxious when we're finally walking in your will. We're filled with joy. So fill us, Lord. Give us the courage. Fill us with the Spirit. We cannot do it without you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we worship through the table and worship through song. And as we walk out, Lord, that you would give us the resolve to walk in what you're calling us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.